Please listen carefully. So, welcome on to the podcast, the delightful, daring, the dangerous, Dave DeFore. About to head out to Arizona to do something out in the desert. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure it's definitely not sketchy at all. No. Uh, Dave, how you been? How's, how's Good, September? Uh, it's, I mean, it's September. It's awful. Yeah. Well, it depends. Actually, depends. It's, it's nice for people who don't like to work, right? So, you know, it's nice to have the time off. It's nice to be able to lay around and binge watch TV shows or like I watched Mission Impossible the other night. So good. Uh, you know, not having to think about basketball has been, it's been nice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good to have a transition. You got to have a break every once in a while, but I am definitely ready to get back into it. And I, I have the personal luxury of, being a big old college football fan. So I at least have something to ease me back into having sports all the time. It is a little different, you know, having just the Saturday games because when it's Wednesday, t- Thursday night and the NBA season, you can turn on some trash NBA game. At the very least, you can go watch <coughs> college football season. You kind of just got to wait till the weekends or watch some old tape. Not not, not quite the same. You, you a football fan at all? Uh, I used to be, and, and now I just don't have time. No, I feel that. I, I, I can certainly see my, uh, my career going that way if things work out. It's, it's, it, especially, I think the, tough, the toughest thing about it is just to remember all the names and all the faces of multiple sports. I think that's a lot of why you hear NBA-focused f- uh, personnel not cover college basketball as much. And if you do, it's a guy like you know Sam Vecini's covering the draft. You have to right. specialize in some respect. and. If you're talking about every different sport, you probably don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree. Yeah. No. So I'm glad I could get the uh, podcast off and a little rambling. You know, I can go yeah. off on a couple of different tangents. That's what I like to do here on the Heard It Here Sports Podcast. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and talk a little bit more about your background. I know you were overseas coaching in Europe for a while. Is that right? Do you want to just tell me a little bit about, so maybe maybe even a little earlier on, so, sort of when you fell in love with basketball, when that sort of materialized, something you could really do professionally, just how your career has grown and what, what sort of skills have you picked up along the way? Uh, hmm. I mean, I fell in love with basketball just like everybody else did when, when they were like five. Uh, <laughs> you know, played my whole life growing up. Thought I'd play in the NBA. Nobody, nobody told me I was only going to be like five nine. You know, um, they never tell you. No, they don't. They don't let you know that you they have always... unre- unrealistic dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there are any parents out there listening, just tell your kids when they have some kind of unrealistic dream. But um, educate them on the importance of having a plus ten wingspan. Yeah, yeah, but also like you know, realistic goals are important. Uh, so anyway, took time off from basketball in my twenties. Did a bunch of other stuff, started a couple of businesses, did things like that. Was living in South Korea, working as a teacher, and they asked if I had any any interest in coaching the JV girls volleyball team at the high school. And I was like, sure, why not? I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was a lot of fun. Then I coached the wrestling team because they already had a basketball coach. And on the side, I had started training kids in the gym in basketball, just you know, teaching them quick decision making, shooting, things like that. And then I moved to Germany. 
and was doing the same thing with some lower level pro guys, just training, working guys out. A team wanted me to play for them. And I said, uh, I really want to coach because I'm old. And so we worked out a deal and I coached the team and and it was fun and uh, I really enjoyed it. And then I moved back to the States and couldn't find a coaching job. And so I did Sports Business Classroom where I got to meet Larry Kuhn and Eric Pincus and Nate Duncan and everyone basically said, hey, you should try writing and talking about basketball. I was like, okay, I can do this while I'm trying to find a coaching job or a scouting job or something like that. And uh, it turns out I'm okay at it. So that's how I'm here is that I am very, very good. eh, Let's say very, very decent at running my mouth in particular about the sport of basketball. Yeah, no, I would say at least above average, you know, got to start the standards somewhere. That, that's that, so that's actually a really interesting story. I sort of knew the the Germany stuff, but I wasn't w- aware that you were in South Korea teaching it first. When uh, what sort of led you to move out there? Did you have any connections over uh, in South Korea? Um, and my, what was it like? Did you learn the language? Are you fluent at all in South Korean? Uh, no. Or, or Korean? Uh, in Korean? No. Uh, I you know what? I knew enough Hangul. Well, Hangul is a written language, but I knew enough mm-hmm. Korean to like get myself drunk and fed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, please and thank you and all those things that I try to learn. Well, and, you knew the functional terminology. Yeah, yeah. Any Anywhere I go, I try to I, I try to do, you know, hello, goodbye, please, thank you, and food and drink. Because those are the important things. And they open a lot of doors, actually, because you can sit down and you, even if I don't speak your language, you and I can sit down and we can figure out what we're trying to say to each other. Some of the most enjoyable experiences of my life are sitting around drinking and eating with people that I, I can't speak the same language as. So uh, my, my wife is active duty Air Force, and so she was being stationed there. So I went with her, and it was, wow. uh, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed South Korea. I think it's a place, um, you know, it's, it's like a completely different planet compared to the U.S. And, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting place to live. It gave, gave me a different perspective on a lot of things about life that you just don't think about, especially as a white person in America. Yeah. Um, because being a white person in Korea, you are a very small minority and you stand out and you're treated differently. And so it altered my perspective from that standpoint quite a bit, but it was a, you know, it was an educational experience from a food standpoint, from a life standpoint, like it's a completely different life over there. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And, and then obviously Europe is Europe and you know, it's fantastic. Yeah, no, I love the point you made about um, sort of being the one that stands out when you're over there um, in an Asian country. Actually, I one of my roommate or my roommate my freshman year in college was grew up in Seoul, South Korea, so it was there for you know first 15 years or whatever. I, I mean, it's it's really just a different way of growing up. And I think when you go over there and you meet people and you make those connections, you realize. Number one, obviously, I think everyone knows this at this point. We're all kind of the same. But number two, it's the thing that changes this a little bit is how you're raised. It's how you're brought up. I right. mean, if, if you're brought up in a different culture, you're kind of going to be like the people in that culture. That's kind of how culture works. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we talked about that. That's really interesting. Um, could you tell me a little bit how well, – so what sort of player development stuff did you do? Did you have any specializations within that field? Oh well, shooting in particular, the, the science of shooting, trying to trying to accentuate what people already do well as far as their functional movement goes, uh, and and how that relates to shooting. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel all the time, I, I often think that's a mistake, and especially for more advanced players. It, it, it can be a real mistake. But yeah, shooting, 
shooting tweaks, and and then again focusing on decision making and and trying to improve basketball IQ. Mike D'Antoni is is when you ask him about what you need players to do, he's very very to the point. You got to be able to do three things. You got to be able to catch and go, so drive to the basket, catch and move the ball, so just making quick decisions, moving the basketball, catch and shoot. You got to be able to do those things. Now clearly superstars are a whole different beast, but. For 85% of basketball players, that's what you have to be able to do. Those three things. Now, the other 15%, they need to be able to shoot off the dribble, and they need to be able to uh, know how to come off a screen and, and, and go through a screen with the ball in their hands, things like that. But 85% of the game is just making quick decisions. So I, I focus on quite a bit on that. And, and then in my coaching style is very similar. Um, my offense is, is based on movement and motion of the ball. Players move quite a bit, but the ball does a lot of the work because the ball can move so much faster. So a lot of that Dan Tony, the ball has energy stuff seeped into my coaching. Yeah, that's really interesting. You talk about that. I, th- I think this kind of harkens back to the idea of. So I, I can't remember. Maybe it was like a Malcolm Gladwell book, but you read it, and uh, they, a big focus is uh, strong link versus weak link. So the idea that they give soccer as an example of a weak link sport where you're more reliant on having the best possible worst player, right? As opposed to basketball, there's much more emphasis on having the best possible best player. Yes. And I think what we've realized is. Yeah, that's obviously true, but we're at the point where we have uh, – you have to put emphasis on it, the weak link. You can't Absolutely. have a weak fifth player. I think you could have a weak fifth player 10 years ago even yeah. maybe and have some some success. But I think the terminology that – I'm not sure exactly who, st- who thought of it, but it's the record scratch on offense that you're talking about. You right. can't have a guy who catches the ball and it just stops. The offense is frozen. The offense – there's – just a lack of fluidity is really the word. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my, friend, my friend Joe Gill on, on Twitter the other day made a, a great point about Danny Green being one of the worst dribbling two guards to ever be in the league. And yet Danny Green is a very good player. You know why? Because he made sure he was a good shooter. He makes quick decisions. He can dribble just enough that he can get out of trouble if he has to. But he can he can also make you pay on a closeout. And he defends, and he goes all out defending. And so, you know, that if that guy's your weak link, which he's never on a, on a team, but if he's your worst player, like he probably was on the 2014 Spurs, yet he was their best player, I think, during that finals. I mean, he set a new finals record for most made threes, and he was incredible. So, yeah, quick decision-making to me is the biggest differentiator between a bad player and an average player. Now, when you get into superstar stuff, that's a whole different ballgame. But the, the difference between the sixth or seventh man on the bench and the twelfth man on the bench is often IQ and decision making. Yeah, and I think what is kind of important is you see nowadays, you don't really see teams succeed without strong sixth or seventh men. You never really have in the past, but more, more so is the salaries of really good sixth and seventh men have skyrocketed. You know, you can see a guy that's your sixth man getting paid $20 million a year comfortably. You know, you wouldn't even blink at that if he's a really good sixth man. Right. Um, so it's just more and more important to focus on, yeah, can, can this guy functionally work on a winning team? And I, I think it's important to talk about Danny Green. Like, he's so much better than the average conception of he's just a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter, and he defends well. I mean, he's not like an ISO defender. It's the transition defense that really sets him apart. And 
in terms of his three-point shooting, yeah, it's good, but right, he can attack a closeout. He can do what he needs to do to draw attention outside of just standing on the wing. And if you're not able to affect the game in enough ways, then the defense will forget about you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I guess we can move on. I've always been pretty interested in the NBA draft. Always liked the concept. Feel like it's just a really interesting thing to have in the NBA um, or in sports in general. So, I guess first of all, what's like the earliest draft that you remember? I guess for for me, it was the it was the 2012 draft with Anthony Davis and Michael Kidd Gilchrist going number one. Hold on, how two. old are you? I'm 22. Oh, I got into basketball. Oh gosh. Pretty late. Oh yeah. Man. Oh okay. Woo. Oh my oh, god. Oh no, no. I I'm uh, I and that's the first I like remember at the time. Like, huh? Yeah, Anthony Davis. That guy's gonna be pretty good. You know, I I, I didn't watch much NBA early on in my life. I watched some college basketball more so than anything. So I sort of you know knew Anthony Davis is the dude from Kentucky and Michael K. Gilchrist is his teammate. He's getting drafted number two overall, and that's why it stands out in my mind because. You know, that was the one-two guy. I don't know why. I don't know why that was the first one I remember. But you all take right. the question. And yeah, this one's going to be. All right. So yeah. the first the first draft I remember actually like paying attention to, I think might have been the 90. Yeah, it was the 93 draft. Chris Weber and Penny Hardaway Ooh. draft was probably the first one that I paid attention to. So I was like 12. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would have been after the uh, Fab Five team, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really follow. I followed the NBA like closely, as close as you could back then. There was no internet or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was the Larry Johnson draft. That was the Hornets uh, had the number one pick. It yeah. might have been the Larry Johnson draft, but the real, the first one I really cared about was the Weber draft because they had that trade. Right. That's Weber what I was about for, to say. The Penny. Penny trade. Yeah, and so and that one was it was really interesting, and, and then before that. I mean, you know, I, I don't I just don't remember really paying attention to it um, outside of knowing who it was after, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, exactly. And that's that's why I asked the question, because that was something I thought about it. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. There's there, there's like a couple of drafts. I remember, obviously, the guys and I was aware of them, but didn't really care about them until they were in the league. I wasn't really aware of the draft process. Yeah. That's a that's a really good question, by the way. You should ask everyone that. Um, yeah, I think I think the one I would say the Weber draft because off the top of my head, the Weber Hardaway draft is what comes up. But I loved Larry Johnson at UNLV, so it makes sense that I also would have would have been paying attention to that one. But I think yeah. it's the '93 draft. Man, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I'm trying to see who else that is. Vin Baker, uh, Sean Bradley, real exciting names. <laughs> oh boy! Ooh, Bobby Hurley. I recognize uh, that one. So Bobby Hurley was my yeah. favorite player. Uh, really? I was yeah, I was a Duke fan growing up, and uh. I was point guard. Bobby Hurley was my favorite player, and I still I'll stand by this man. I think that I mean obviously the car accident like you know derailed his career completely. That guy mm. would have been incredible in the NBA if he hadn't gotten hurt. I mean, he was mm. gonna just I mean he would have been Steve Nash ish before uh, Steve Nash. Wow. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, I, I would, I, I believe you. Um, yeah, no, a couple of other guys in this draft: Sam Cassell, Alan Houston went number eleven. That's that is a pretty a good draft. One. It's a good draft. Yeah, Nick Van Exel, 
37th overall. Yeah, that is that is pretty good one. Yeah, I, I've I've always been pretty interested in you know going back and looking at the old drafts, even um you know even the ones I wasn't around for. I like trying to look up what the articles at the time were saying as opposed to just a, a, anyone can look back 20 years from now and see how the draft went and you know revise the history a little bit. It's interesting. It, it, so for instance, I can't remember which draft it was, but the Evan Turner draft. Mm-hmm. There's there's guys absolutely saying Evan Turner should go number one overall. I was one of those guys. Yeah, like no, nobody's calling him a bust. There's nobody out there saying that. Yeah. Like, like you just got to keep in mind that, uh, yeah, you can say it was obviously he was going to be a bust in retrospect. Uh, probably not. Um, and if you were going to – if you were able to tell Evan Turner was a bust right away, uh, you're not going to be commenting on Twitter. You're going to be raking in money somewhere because uh, you're clearly like a – damn profit or something um <laughs> exactly let's uh, so here's a, co- a question i'm sure you've been asked this one before um i know you're not huge into the draft stuff but you you generally keep up with like the top prospects each year right yeah sure mm-hmm. yeah so who are some guys maybe from the recent class i don't really care particular time frame but who are maybe one or two guys you were high on that just didn't work out and that you can tell like clearly it was an evaluation thing and who are a couple of guys that you're really proud of for picking up on? I'd imagine probably a couple of guys that are shooters that you picked out. You mean just from recent years? I mean, I was I was high on Donovan Mitchell. Okay, uh, that'd be a good know. one. Yeah, yeah, I thought he should have probably a top five or six pick. I don't know. It's tough, man, because for the most part, the guys that I follow on the draft have have really just been really good at doing yeah. the draft stuff. Coles Wicker, Sam Bassini, like they're just really good at it. And so when, by the time I'm catching up, I'm already biased toward the guys that they think are good. Um, Sterling Brown is a guy that I loved. Yeah, a lot of these guys that, that wind up going a little late, wings in particular, I, I, happen to, I happen to like see a lot more for some reason in some of these wings, especially strong wings. I think that's actually like a, kind of a hidden scout tip is that you know, strong wings tend to succeed in the NBA. Yeah, that's a, that's that, I guess that's an interesting thing to think on. Are there anything else? Yeah, so I know strength is something I hear a lot from right Cole. Uh, a lot of those guys at the Stepian, a lot of focus on yeah strength, especially core strength. Mm-hmm. Um, an example would be Jaden McDaniel's is a guy in this upcoming class that he's a guy I, I've watched you know a little bit of him and his offense really pops. He's a six yeah. ten shooter. Yep, I saw uh, him at USA camp last fall. Okay. Deceptively yeah, I mean, he's, strong. He's got, he's got a versatile offense. Go ahead. Deceptively strong. Like he he looks, he's super skinny. He's got small, like his shoulders are not very broad. His hips are not very broad, but he's really strong. I watched him against getting post-ups against guys that are, look at least like they should be twice as strong. And so um, it, it's one of these things where it's very important to look at the tape and not just measurements. So that's really interesting. I'm actually incredibly excited to hear that because he's a dude like I watched his offense and I loved him. And he's he's actually a guy that I, I was using him as an example of someone that's considered weaker than at least he should be for his I frame. I think you got to see him in person, though. Yeah, I, I okay. really do so that, think you got to see him in person. Like I, I was thinking the exact same same thing. And then I saw him in person. I was like, uh, no, this guy's a little bit stronger than than you would think. Yeah, that's awesome to hear because I, I – so he's a guy, when I first saw him, I was like, I kind of want to 
he looks like a number one overall pick just with his offensive game okay. that he's got the offensive game and number one overall pick. I mean, I, obviously there was some weakness. It, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm looking for like the, the weakness in the death star, you know, like there's gotta be something here. Mm-hmm. This guy can't just be that good. And when I hear, yeah, maybe his strength isn't there. He's not really trying on defense. I'm willing to just take that at face value, but yeah, I, I that is definitely promising to hear because he's a guy that I'm really excited about. And I think he, he's not. So I feel like when you hear um, not strong, doesn't really play defense, you hear lazy. He's not a lazy guy and he's not, he doesn't lack competitive fire. Right. So I, I'm not particularly concerned about that when I see a drive from a guy because mm-hmm. it's not, not a, you know, not a literal drive, but figurative, like the fire in his eyes, I yeah. know he's going to put in the work it takes to at least be adequate on the, at mm-hmm. that end. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, RJ Barrett's another example. I, I just, I think he's going to be decent. I don't think he's going to be as good as a number three overall pick, but he has that fire in his eyes. He has a chip on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. He, he has what it takes. The last thing I'd talk about with the draft, not, not really the news as much recently, maybe more so last summer, the idea that the one and done rule could be repealed, uh, most likely it'd be for the upcoming 2022 draft. I'm more interested to ask you about what you think will be different about the preps to pro era this time around, as opposed to last era, because I think at this point, it's pretty clear it's going to be passed. It's just a matter of when. So how do you think it'll be different now that we had, I don't know. I think it was maybe a 10 year period, more or less where high school kids were getting drafted directly and I think since we've had another approximately 10-year period of the one-done era, what do you see coming out of the next Preps to Pro era? Um, I mean, I think you'll probably see teams do a better job of filling out their scouting staff for that. You're going to see people tap into the grassroots uh, even more so that they have more background on these guys. Because, you know, anybody can watch tape and tell you who's good, but can you get background to know the person behind the tape, behind the player. I think that's what you're going to find is that, that teams are going to put more more of their money into it. I mean, the number one thing that I hear when I talk to executives around the league is, hey, get your high school stuff together. Make sure, you know, make sure you're telling people who want to be scouts, hey, you need your high school stuff. You need, to, you need to, right now, you need to be looking at the freshmen in high school and knowing what's happening. I think at this point, we've got a pretty good structure in terms of, Obviously, there's some issues with AAU. I think there's a lot of detractors from it. But we have, um, at least, uh, especially with EYBL and some of the, like the Peachtree uh, Jam tournament, we have places for big-time scouts to come watch several guys at once without having to, uh, or not even as much the scouts, but more, more, you know, the GMs can come out and get a good idea of several different guys without having mm-hmm. to go to, 12 different high school games. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there anything you see being introduced in the future, whether it be, I know there's this idea of sort of NBA academies being introduced. Are there any more in the future, more revolutionary ideas you see to create structure for these young kids that are coming into the NBA at a younger age? Um, I, I don't think you're going to see actual like stateside NBA academies anytime soon, if ever. Uh, one idea I actually floated was was allowing NBA teams to run themselves kind of like like you would in 
like a soccer team, like over in Europe where you had an academy where you could sign a guy at seven years old or something. But then you get into this whole wacky other world, and I, I don't know that the NBA would want anything to do with that. I don't think you're going to actually see any kind of monumental changes stateside. I think it's going to be very similar to how it is now. Ah, that's interesting. I don't think that's totally unreasonable. I, th- I think the idea that this is like a, a death blow for college basketball is just overstated. See, I, I, I actually think this is going to be a blessing in disguise for college basketball because what you're going to have is you're going to have guys who skip college altogether and then you're going to have guys that go for three or four years. And that is better. The continuity is better. You can actually build these guys up as a reason to come watch rather than just rooting for you know, laundry. You'll be rooting for players again. I think that for for the NCAA, they they shouldn't be trying to fight it. If anything, they should they should be trying to help it along. College basketball is going to be college basketball because of people's alliances to the schools. But imagine how much stronger it could be if you had your best players sticking around for three or four years. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree. All, it's all relative, right? Yes, you might not have one year of Zion Williamson, okay, but but relative to the competition, you're still going to have guys who are great. They're just not NBA great. Yeah, uh, and, and I think there's certainly still going to be guys that come through the college system. So I'm a Clemson football fan. It's probably not a guy you're going to know, but Christian Wilkins is a guy that came in, and you could just tell he loved being at school. It, and it wasn't as much as like a showboating, I'm the man on campus. It's just he loved being at school. He loved wearing the, you know, he, he loved having the name on his back of the jersey. He loved running down the hill. He loved going to class the day after a game. Some kids just love the experience, and some parents are going to, you know, push their kids. If, if their kid could either be a borderline professional, you know, going into the G League, making a couple, you know, 50000 for a year, mm-hmm. some parents are still going to push their kids to go to college instead. Absolutely. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's, it's, I, I don't think it's something to be concerned about at all. I, I do kind of want to, now that we're mentioning it, I do kind of want to talk about the G League. Just the more I think about it and hearing people talk at SBC too. So obviously the growth of the summer league could be something that kind of relates to this. I, I, I sort of expect the, the G League to grow in uh, not just its popularity, but in how it is used in the NBA. I think it's just far too easy for a team especially once you have the one-and-done rule eliminated, to send young guys down to the G League and use it as sort of an incubation system. But in order for that to happen, there's some rules that are going to have to change. Right now, there's not much incentive for G League teams, coaches, and you know the guys, the players on the team to actually develop young guys that are down there. Well, except for the, the teams that have relationships with the NBA team, which is true. Right. the majority. So, sorry. There is there is certainly some incentive, but uh, at least as as a player on that team, your your number one objective is not development. Your number one objective is winning a G League championship. Just like college. True. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's not an inherently bad thing. Right. Um, especially you know, it, it. How are you going to convince the best thirty-two year olds to come play? Well, tell them to play their hardest, not right. play try to get a 19-year-old a shoe deal. Yeah. It's not really going to – But I think the cream them. rises, right? Like, and I think if you're going to – if you're a good player and you're an NBA-level player, like, it's going to show. There's no way – like, nobody's going to hold you back. The coaching staff's not going to hold you back, and that's the most important part. You know, I, I think that there are definitely people that have those concerns, but I don't think it'll be an issue. Yeah. 
No, so I actually wanted to ask more. Um, where do you see? So I, I guess I think the G League is going to grow a lot. I it just seems really easy to sort of start sending stars down to the G League. Not old stars, but you know, really young guys. The Mark Markel Fultz is an extreme example, but the Markel Fultz is of the league. I, mm-hmm. I think soon enough the stigma is going to be lifted that this is you know an insult. And eventually it'll just be a place for rehab, for sort of reconstructing, whether it's something mental, whether it's something physical, whether you just need to go down to the G League and play a few games. Yeah. Um, do you see anything growing, developing in terms of what it's going to be down there in terms of player ops or maybe just like the growing of the popularity of the G League, uh, how it's used to develop players, anything on, along those lines? Um, I think I think you're kind of dead on. Um, the the idea that the, some of these guys would skip college and then have to play a year in the G League makes quite a bit of sense. And I wonder if that isn't another selling point for the G League. You know, So it could be that you have these, these young guys in the G League. You're going to have people with eyeballs. Like You're going to get eyeballs. People are going to watch those games because they want to see these young guys. They're excited about them. So, yeah, it might be a thing that actually – they work together, work hand in hand. So, yeah, like, man, I listen, I live in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Like, if I could drive 40 minutes to Greenville, like, Greenville has a, uh, a minor league baseball team for the Boston Red Sox, and they've had, you know, draft picks there over the years. If I could drive to Greenville to watch Miles Bridges play, I would do that every week. Every week. I mean, that's that's I, I think the amount of revenue you're missing out by not creating a a clear draw in the G League right there. Yeah, I, I think it just makes a ton of sense to even if it's not requiring guys to be down there for a year, making it a common practice so that it's no longer there's 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 a stigma around it now. We need to remove that because if younger guys that are stars are playing down there. Like, mm-hmm. dude, can you imagine if uh, I, I think maybe New Orleans team is in Birmingham or whatever? Can you imagine Eerie. you want to see Zion play for a year? Yeah, the Erie like, Bayhawks. The guys in New Orleans are going to see him for seven, eight years afterwards. Right. There's no disadvantage to taking him for a year, putting him in Birmingham. I, I'm, I'm sure he's not going to be a huge fan of living in Birmingham versus New Orleans, but yeah. I, I think I think there's just something to be said for. Uh, I mean, whatever, the city concerns, that was sort of an aside. I think there's something to be said for funneling these guys down to the G League and having that become a, a rival of the uh, baseball minor developmental league more so than what it's been in the past. Yeah, I, I actually agree. I think that's the path that they're going to go on. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you had any uh, other you know, sneak tidbits you wanted to share on that. Or, uh, nah, no. We can I, just no move. I, I haven't talked to the to – the, G League folks about it. Yeah. No, I so yeah, we can we can go ahead and move on. Talk a little bit about how we expect the playoffs to go next year. Oh Obviously <laughs> last year, you know, I, I think there's gonna be a ton of change from last year's playoffs to this. That's that's yeah. what I would say for sure. Uh, there's been a ton of movement in the upper echelons of the NBA. The way I want to start this out is I'm just going to put you on the spot and ask you what would be your second round uh, in the West, and then we'll do the East. So your last four teams remaining. Uh, don't, don't consider 
seeding, don't consider anything like that. Just what four teams do you expect to be playing against each other uh, in the uh, semifinals? I have no idea. Uh, Nuggets, Clippers, Warriors, Jazz. Okay. And I, I like that. I like Philly, that. Philly, Milwaukee, Toronto, and Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah, so I guess the ones – so I'd key in first on that Warriors pick. I guess what were the teams? It was Nuggets, Warriors. Did you have Houston in there? Uh, second round? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. so I guess Houston at the uh, – that would be pretty – wow. Yeah, I guess we could absolutely see another like four or five Houston uh, Houston Warriors series. Golly, would, would, would Maury just re- retire on the spot if they lost to the Warriors after they lost KD? Like what? Would he just like instantly start spouting statistics on the referees? I feel like his eyes might roll into the back of his head, and he'd just, just, just lose it. That'd be terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think that they would be very excited about that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, so I'm not as the. Uh, I feel like I just haven't been in basketball long enough so I can hold optimism more than some people. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I like the idea that people can change and that Russell Westbrook can come onto this team and adapt his place out to some extent. I just think that I've done this dance too many times. <laughs> exactly. And I haven't done this dance enough. So I'm willing to give him the opportunity. You know, I just think there's something to be said for the idea that if Russ cuts out 30% of his game and he's only 70% of Russell Westbrook and still really good, maybe he can get something out of that. I think yeah. not having them in the second round of the playoffs is pretty reasonable, though, especially given how brutal it is. And I think that's – I mean, that's part of why I, I wanted to phrase it like that is because – so picking the eight for the playoffs is one thing in the West. That's really tough. But you can cut – you know, you're cutting teams like Dallas. You're cutting New Orleans. You're not necessarily cutting teams. You're like, wow, that's a real contender. But when you cut it down to four, you have to cut out. Um, so, I mean, you know, between the Warriors, the Jazz, the Nuggets, the Rockets, the Lakers, and the Clippers, you have to cut out two of those teams. Mm-hmm. That's not even including the Trailblazers because I'm not including the Trailblazers. But, I mean, those are two teams with legitimate championship aspirations. So, yeah. I I think it's just... Obviously, we spend the entire regular season looking at the race for the playoffs. So that's 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 what your mind drifts to is what are the eight teams they're going to get in, and I feel like that's the normal exercise. But just seeing that two of those teams aren't even going to win a series, I mean, it's either going to be LeBron not winning a series or you know James Harden again. Just none of those six teams can afford to lose a series. Is I, I guess what I would really emphasize. Like, which of those six teams, if they don't win a series? is okay or isn't making major moves. The Warriors, maybe? Uh, Yeah, the Warriors would be it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they don't really have room to panic, but, I mean, if the Jazz lose, if the Jazz lose in the first round again, that's that's heartbreaking. Where do you move from there? I mean, you, you, keep, you keep building, I guess, but, yeah, I, I think that's tough. Um, on the other side, uh, let's talk about that Brooklyn selection. So what do you see... Um, I, I'm not. I'm. I'm personally not nearly as concerned about the drama surrounding Kyrie. Um, I get that there were problems in Boston, 
again, I'm generally just more optimistic. I think that, you know, there's three sides of every story, and Kyrie's is probably really weird and probably a bit of a fairy tale, but, you know, his story's probably got a little bit of truth to it. Um, what do you what do you see being the driving factor for them making the uh, the second round? So, I mean, I think it's a pretty reasonable pick, but it's not just throwing Kyrie on that team and they're good, um, right? What else do you see happening? I Honestly, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I That's mean, cool. like, they've got some talent. It's more about the rest of the East not really having any talent than it is about I mean, like, I think the Sixers or the Bucks are going to come out of the East. There we yeah. go. And that's pretty much where it is. The rest of the teams, I don't really, I don't really care about at this point because uh, who knows what it's going to look like. You know, who that, knows what Kyrie's going to look like in that offense? I mean, I'm assuming it's going to be better than D'Angelo Russell was. But you know, is Karis LeVert going to going to continue to improve, or or is he going to get back to the level he was to start last season? There's a lot of questions. It, which is why it's tough to even say, you know, who's going to make the playoffs at this point, much less, you know, who's going to make the second round. You know, now that you say that, I, I think you're actually right. It's when you put it in those terms, it really is just Milwaukee and Philadelphia in the East. Mm-hmm. So the discussion really can stop there. Uh, it's almost inevitable that those two teams match up in the finals. So maybe before we go, let's talk about that matchup, because that is one that really interests me. We didn't happen to see it last year. We very easily could have. We're only four bounces away from seeing it. Kawhi's not going to be there to stand in the way this year. Philadelphia's got a much different look than last year. We can't really predict how that's going to look, but what are a couple of the key um, key factors that you see in a Milwaukee Sixers series? Uh, it's going to be all about Giannis and, and how he's defended. That's it. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, so obviously Al Horford is – sort of the, I feel like, the ideal Giannis defender in terms of more the idyllic uh, Giannis defender. Sort of you, you imagine up a Giannis defender, it's Al Horford. But I think Joel Embiid has done a an underrated job on Giannis. He's just got a level of physicality and strength that Al Horford can't quite rival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I and think then the other, the other side of the coin is who's going to score. Like, who's going to create shots for, for Philadelphia? Yeah, I mean... I think I think we might be overestimating a little bit the Josh Richardson addition. I mean, Josh Richardson's good, but yeah, yeah, he can't, I, he's not a, an elite shot creator. Well, it, right, it, and it's less about him being the shot creator I, and more just in general. I think he's going to be good on defense. He's going to provide something, but the fact that he's got a really good contract just kind of inflates his value. It's a little bit with the Robert Covington situation, though. He is really good. He's not quite the level that some people talk him up to be because he's got that good contract. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just easy, you know, to inflate his value with that discussion. Yeah. Um, so, actually, let me talk – the last thing I want to talk about. So, I'm from Spartanburg. I got to see Zion a few times when he was in high school. What was your first Zion experience? What was the first time you remember seeing Zion that it really stuck in your mind? I saw him 2016 – Adidas Nations in LA, wow. and uh, and he was dominant, even even as a sixteen year old. Yeah, or no. fifteen year old maybe. Sixteen. I'm, I'm, tr- sure. I'm trying to think. Sixteen. He that was fifteen or been... sixteen, but he was right. That may have been before his junior year. Yeah. Yeah, and he was he was pretty pretty damn good. Yeah. No, I mean he's obviously you know being from Spartanburg, 
I'm obviously going to stand the hell out of Zion no matter how how he plays. But what are I, I've had a little bit of trouble trying to formulate exactly what it is. What is it about his game that stands out compared to NBA competition? And obviously there's the athleticism, the leaping, etc. But what else is it? Because he's not just a leaper. Uh, I mean, he's extremely explosive, obviously. Um, he's also, his, his motor to me is what sets him apart from mm-hmm. other guys who are crazy athletes. And, uh, you know, I think he's got really good defensive IQ. Um, the defensive part is the, the thing that I'm probably most excited about. So, yeah, no, I think his defense is going to be incredible. Um, and I see him eventually being able to be able to guard like wings and forwards at a pretty high level. Do you think that's reasonable? I mean, I think he's got the foot speed and the agility yeah. to be able to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I, if anything, I, for the, the question for me is, is he going to be able to get all the way down to garden guards? I, 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 think I think on a switch, he's going to be okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Not necessarily someone like yeah. Siakam you put as a primary on a guard. But... Yeah, yeah. You're not going to do that. But I think right. on a switch, he's going to be fine. Yeah. Okay. And I guess last question. What are like, what are the common misconceptions around Zion? And what is it exactly? I think to some extent, it might just be the hype. But I see so many people on Twitter and whatnot that just seem to want Zion. They just assume he's not going to succeed. They just... I swear every every comment for every list is, oh, this guy's never played in the NBA. How can he be on the list ahead of X guy that just played in the NBA and is fine? You know, like ahead of Lonzo Ball. It's like, oh, he's never played in the NBA. It's like, that's yeah, fine. You know, he's still probably better than Lonzo Ball. Um, just what, what what is it about Zion and his game that gets him so many detractors? Or is I mean, it more he's incredible, much? right? Like, but But there's hype. And so whenever there's hype around a guy, you're always going to have the haters. I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to even use that term, but it's just true. Like you're just going to have, is. and there's always going to be wet blankets and people that want to, you know, shut, shut things down. Dude, my first reaction when I hear people talking about Devin Booker is, all right, yeah, but he's probably not that good. I've never really yeah. seen Devin Booker. I just assume. Oh. Well, you got to watch Devin Booker. You got to watch Devin Booker. Oh, he's fine. Uh, I, I've seen a little bit of him, but yeah. it's just that, you know, I watch more of the primetime games. I've never really had league pass in the past, so. Not that much access to Suns games on national television, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Hey, hopefully that'll change this year. Thirty-five win Suns. They're gonna be. They're gonna be pretty mediocre. Right now, they have one national television game. Ooh, that's one more than I would have pegged them for. I think. I don't have the yeah. list in front of me, but I, that's off the top of my head. Well, I'm glad they at least got the one in. You know, that's good. I, I love Phoenix fans. Phoenix fans might be my favorite out of all the fan bases. Now that the Lakers are good again. Yeah. Because you don't have like self-deprecating Lakers fans. That was really fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, I don't really have anything else for you. I mean, I do, but I don't, I don't want to keep you here too much longer. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. I yeah. had a lot of fun. Uh, Appreciate it, man. Yeah. I hope you, uh, hope, hope you feel like you got your fill of talking in. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, you know, it's always good to hop on another podcast. I always enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure most people listening to this show have heard of you, Dave, but you want to go ahead and plug what you're doing, talk about The Athletic? Uh, I mean, I host a few shows over at The Athletic, The Daily Ding, Nerd She Wrote over on the back-to-back feed, you know, uh, doing lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. We got a lot in store for this season. And if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic already, 
definitely hit me up on Twitter at heard it here because I'll give you the discount code for my account. Um, <laughs> tr- trying to get that extra 25 bucks. <laughs> Try to afford synergy for next month. There um, you go. All right. I appreciate you coming on, man. Cool, I'll talk man. to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. All right. Peace out. Later.